you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 9. There are two things I'd like to focus on from this passage uh, from John 9. The first is how the, the entire healing, I think, is, is really, it's a parable of, Christian, of the Christian message and, and the life of Christian discipleship. And then the second is, is how the passage provides a uniquely Christian answer to the problem of suffering. So that's what we're going to look at, kind of parable and, and problem. Verse 1, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Then he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which uh, the word means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened? They demanded. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. And he replied, He put some mud on my eyes and, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they, they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they sent for the man's parents. They asked, is this your son? Is this the one you, uh, you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? And his parents answered, well, We know it is our son, and, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now, or, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. <laughs> He's of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, Christ, would be you know, excommunicated, put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Well, a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. And he replied, well, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've already told you already, and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you, do you want to become his disciples too? And then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, Well, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We, then he gives it kind of a little... Um, impromptu theology lesson here, 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Uh, Incidentally, that's kind of true because to my recollection, there wasn't, there weren't any um, episodes of that type of healing in the Old Testament. If this, verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you let us? And they excommunicated him. They threw him out. Well, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, Are we blind too? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You probably know the story of legendary Green Bay Packer head coach Vince Lombardi, how he would, at the beginning of the season, maybe it was even in the preseason, he'd stand up in front of his football team and he would begin his speech by saying, you know, gentlemen, this is a football and, and, you know, it's his way of, let's go back to the basics. Let's, you know, stress the fundamentals of the game. You know, gentlemen, this is a football. Here's what it's all about. And what I want you to do is, when you look at the front of your bullets and cover, I really want to say to you, you know, church, this is a football. Like, this is, is really what it's all about. Um, the Bible has some these, this is a football moments in it, uh, written in it. And I, I think that today's passage is, is just one of those moments. Um, I don't know that I have anything like super profound to say other than uh, this, is, this is what it's all about. It is. Um, that's a different narrative than one sees in America today. Certainly for secular people, we would all agree that politics, like politics is... is kind of what it's all about. I mean, politics is huge. I go so far as to say the number one religion in America today is politics. Um, Because in politics, well, you get a cause to care about, a tribe to associate with, an enemy to (laughs) combat, um, endless new material to focus on, a place to donate your money, a moral code to enforce, and the list could go on and on. Um, And I am... I am not pointing a finger at anyone in this room. I, I just want us to be sure 
that, that we're not people who get sucked into that. Because that is not God's football. <laughs> um, that's not what it's about. And I think it's, as a general rule, safe to say that far too many American Christians you know, are getting sucked into it. And do need um, an object lesson such as what we have before us today. Look at the picture, if you will. What stood out to me about the picture was, you know, the mud cake around his eye and his whole eye socket. It's very dark, isn't it? I mean, we know that Jesus, Jesus could have just said to the guy, hey, receive your sight, boom. I mean, Jesus spoke to the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Be still, boom. I mean, like most of Jesus' miracles are, are via the voice of divine, divine fiat. You know, he says it, boom, it happens. But in this instance, I mean, what's obviously very noteworthy is that instead of saying, receive your sight, let there be light, he, he spits on the ground. You know, you know, it would have been a lot of spit, I assume, you know, to make, and, and he just, he, he makes a mud cake that he uh, wipes around the eye socket so that the entire eye socket looks, looks black. Now, is there any verse, verse in the Bible that you can think of that kind of speaks to that, that same picture? Anyone? Well, the one that came to my mind was the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, where we read, we read these words from Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are poor, your whole body will be full of darkness. Isn't that what he's doing? He, he's, it's a picture of you know, a spiritual condition. Now, Jesus tells him, the very next thing he says to him is, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So what that suggests to us is that when Jesus performs this mud cake anointing, the guy's not adjacent to the pool. Like he has to, he's somewhere else in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to have to like, grope his way through the city streets. Have you ever, pick, have you ever picked up on that before? I mean, this man with the blackened eyes is going to have to grope his way through the city streets of Jerusalem um, Searching for the pool of Siloam. And, and you cannot, I would imagine that plenty of people would, would have noticed this. I mean, it would have been pretty noteworthy to see this. And what is Jesus trying to do? It's like he's holding up a mirror for Israel and saying, Behold thyself. Like, look at yourself. This is, this is what you look like in God's eyes, Israel. This is your spiritual condition. You're groping around in the dark. Then John gives us a clue on how to interpret, as I said, this parable, or living parable as I see it. He says that the pool of... You want me to move it to the side again? He says that the uh, pool of Siloam goes by a second name. It's also referred to as the pool of scent. Now, there can be multiple meanings here, because obviously the guy is sent to the pool... But he is sent to the pool by the one who is sent from the Father. Like Jesus is the sent one. And one of the common, most common um, references to Messiah in that day is he is the sent one. And therefore, according to a number of rabbinical traditions, the pool of Siloam, the pool of sent, became known as, unsurprisingly, the Messiah's pool. 
So a man with darkened eyes, blackened eyes, must grope through the city streets to go and wash in the Messiah's pool. Um, and I think that, that that likely is a picture of baptism. Um, for Jesus sends us to wash, and, and that washing, it really is like a new birth for us. So what I think John, the apostle, the, the gospel writer, wants us, the reader, to, to do, to see, is to is to picture this man bending down at the Messiah's pool, like splashing water up on his face and, you know, wiping it away from his eyes, and then to see the expression on his face when those eyes open again for the first time. The Daytona 500 is today at 1.30, and I... um, uh, I'm kind of a closeted NASCAR fan. I, <laughs> there are probably three of us total in Idaho. Um, I, I admit it, though. Uh, I like in addition to all of my dreams of winning the World Series and being the starting pitcher. I also dream about driving one of those race cars. Um, and like I do. I, if they came to me and said, "You know, you have been selected among several million entries to drive the Daytona National Speedway," I actually spend time daydreaming about things like that. And if they said that to me, I would reply, are you serious? And they reply in my dreams, yeah. Like the one condition is that you promise to drive wide open all the way around the track. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I want. Um, I fantasize of of my face peeling backwards at 200 miles an hour while like my internal organs are catching three G's as you go around the banked curves, um, I, I'm like the, the pig in the Geico commercial, <laughs> you know, the one, he's, he's saying we, you know, that's what I do in my dreams uh, when I'm driving a NASCAR. And you've got to think that this man was feeling something like that. I mean, really, what is, what is it like to see for the very first time? For the very first time? Um, as light waves pass through these two gelatinous spheres, bounce off the back of the eye, uh, p- put an inverted image on the retina, that then the brain for the very first time, you know, does right side up. And he's like, I see. And so here's what I want you to do. The, the next time you sing Amazing Grace, and for every time hereafter, for the rest of your life, when you sing Amazing Grace and you come to the line, I once was blind, and now I see, you are meant to have a picture of that guy on the front of your bulletin um, in your head when you sing that. Isn't it funny? Like, we've all probably sung that a thousand times, haven't we? How many of us were, like, consciously thinking of this moment when the guy opens his eyes? It's like, we, we don't, but, but no more. Like, I have now completely, hopefully, changed the way you sing that song for, forevermore. Because this is the football. This is what it's about. Well, what, is it, what happens next in the parable? Um, the, the Pharisees have threatened to excommunicate anyone who follows Jesus. Essentially, they put this man on trial. They bring accusations against him. They bring in uh, his own parents, who they try to get to testify against him. Uh, but, but no matter how 
um, how hot the oven is that the Pharisees turn up, um, no matter how intense the pressure, this man refuses to renounce Jesus. This man is a faithful witness. The man rises from the pool, and now he is sent out to be a witness to his Lord, and he is a faithful witness. Uh, and he's a new man. Um, that, there's that funny interchange where people are looking at him and are like, is this the guy? And we're like, no, this isn't the guy. Yeah, it is the guy. He's like, I am the guy. I am the same guy, but I am a, I am a new man, and he's a new creature the light, the light of life has come through his eyes. His whole body is full of light. And if you notice, he's the one that's full of insight as he talks to these guys. And they are the ones full of blindness. Um, he is new. He's a new creature. And then read with me in verse 35 and following. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when, they, when, when Jesus found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And he worshipped them. I mean, that means he, he literally bowed prostrate in front of Jesus. Which in the first century was a, an action that was punishable by death. And so what we have going on here, what, what this really is, is a parable of Christian discipleship particularly in the first centuries, the first few centuries. Those early Christians, they believed, they were baptized, then they were sent out as witnesses, and they suffered persecution for their faith. But the promise was that Jesus, who had gone away, and he had gone away from this man for a time, this Jesus, will, he will return at the end, and he will come to vindicate his people. And when he returns, you will see him face to face, and you will bow down and worship him, just like this blind man who can now see his Savior. And that's it. It's faith, baptism, persecution, Witness, return, vindication, worship. Like the whole, whole Christian life is right there. Uh, after the service today, I'm flying out to Atlanta to officiate the uh, funeral of my, my 95-year-old grandmother who died in, in the night on Tuesday. And I'd ask for your prayers because I don't know... <laughs> Never officiated the funeral of, of somebody, you know, a family member close. It's a great honor to be able to do that. But I think some of you who care for elderly family members, you, you know exactly what I'm going to talk about here. Um, you know, over the last five years especially, grandmother, she lost her hearing. I mean, she couldn't hear hardly at all. Uh, she, she lost her mental faculties. And yet, she like she would just turn on Fox News. Or maybe your grandmother, she would just turn on CNN. And they, they listen to, oh, the terrible things that are going on in this world and oh, the other side and the other side. And, and, and she, was just, she just gets scared. If you listen to 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, I mean, they're just scared. They're, they're afraid. They're afraid of everything. That, because this is what they're being told is, it, is the big thing. And... What I wish I, you know, wish I would have done a better job of is, is uh, like, Grandma, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you the story that really matters. 
It's the story of a man who is born blind, whom Jesus meets, and he puts black mud cakes on his eyes, and then he sends him to a pool to wash. And the pool is the pool of the Messiah, and he can see again. And he goes out, and he lives a life of courage and testimony and faith. And Grandma, that's, that's the football. <laughs> it's not what you see on TV. That's what it's all about. I don't know if you doctors, um, as you're caring for patients, if you're even allowed to sit down with a patient and say, i got a story to tell you. But I think it's very, very important that we find things such as this, just small, simple, beautiful pictures of the gospel and of Christianity that we can communicate to others in the course of our daily life. And I can, I can hardly think of a better one than John chapter 9. All right, the second point is much shorter, and it's based on verses 2 and 3. If you want to look there, we'll read it. Uh, His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus replied, you know, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And I said earlier in the sermon um, that that this is, we have a uniquely Christian answer to the problem of suffering in this passage. Um, you know, the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, is probably the most often cited reason why people don't believe in God. Uh, if you don't know it, it's, you know, you know it even if you don't know it by that title. Why, if there is an all-powerful God who is good, who is loving, who loves his creation, why is there so much seemingly pointless evil and suffering in the world? That is a very hard question to answer. It's important to note that it's not a uniquely Christian problem, though. It's not as though like there are tons of uh, worldviews out there that have a really great answer to the problem and suffering and evil. Um, There aren't a lot of good answers. So, for instance, um, you know, millions and millions of Hindus are, are in the world today who believe that if you were born with a birth defect or a disability, such as this man suffered, well, you know, why did that happen? It's just karma. It's because you, su- because you are being punished for your sins that you committed in a former life. I don't think that's a terribly satisfying answer, is it? Uh, millions of Buddhists are in the world today who believe that, that your suffering of a birth defect or a disability is nothing more than an illusion. <laughs> You know, all suffering is is merely illusionary, and I think we'd agree that's not a terribly satisfying answer as well. And, you know, secular naturalism is not very satisfying either, because essentially in an atheistic, secular, naturalistic worldview, whatever you suffer in this life, your suffering is meaningless. It's utterly meaningless, because life is meaningless, and and, and you know, I mean, all we are are these lucky conglomerations of gene combinations. And, uh, you know, our existence is just thanks to the cosmic roulette table that, you know, was black when it needed to be or, or red when it needed to be. Uh, and, you know, sorry, but if you're born blind, well, you know, your gene combinations didn't go so well. But, and that's not a satisfying answer either. But what we as Christians say, at least when we suffer, we say, verse 3, that neither this man nor his parents sinned. But the reason I am going through this is so that God might do his work in me. 
that the work of God might be displayed in my life. In this man's case, it was displayed through his physical and spiritual healing. Um, It's not always displayed in our physical healing, is it? But it certainly can be displayed in our spiritual healing. And what I found after, what, 18 years of pastoring, usually the Christians who know God best are the ones who have suffered the most. You know, we might be tempted to think that those who know God best are the ones who have read the most books, the theologians, the academics. No, no, no. Uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, who is a British Christian, he came to Christ later in life. He said that, I love his quote, he made the point that everything worth knowing that he ever learned about God, he learned through suffering. I mean, even now, some of you are are nodding your heads in agreement. Um, Everything worth knowing about God, I learned through suffering. And in the West, you know, the way that we do theology, there's been a tendency to make theology the study about God, you know, the reading about God, rather than the experience of God. As one author writes it, it is suffering that exposes the profound difference between merely knowing about God and knowing God himself. For true knowledge of God cannot be confined to propositional knowing. True knowledge of God is a deeply personal, experiential, and even mystical thing. And I know a lot of you would just would say amen to that. Um, that, that you have come to know God um, so much more by virtue of the terrible things you've had to go through over this past year. Um, and God is, you know, what does Jesus say? Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And your suffering has, has been a way for you to really experience eternal life to its fullest. Even though when you're in the middle of it, you probably wouldn't have <laughs> characterized it quite like that. But it's true. It's so true. And you are then like this man to go and witness to the fact that God has done a great work in your life through that suffering. C.S. Lewis once compared knowing about God versus knowing God to having a map of the beach versus actually taking a walk on the beach. And while some of um, the things people have suffered in this room over the last year, uh, no one would call that a walk on the beach um, and Jesus may have even, he may have even, even seemed absent to you in those times of suffering. And yet, paradoxically, those are the times when he has been most present with you. And I think the same point is made in the Gospels again and again. Suffering is actually the pathway to glory. Like in, in losing our earthly comfort, we find Jesus Christ in deeper, more experiential ways. We do. And so that's the uniquely Christian answer to the problem of evil. It's so that God would display his work in my life. In conclusion, um, everyone who reads John 9 notices the great reversal that takes place in the passage. Where we have a man born blind who cannot see. It washes in the Messiah's pool and he comes to see. And then the men who are born with sight, the Pharisees, who say they can see, become progressively blinder and blinder till the end of the passage. They are utterly and completely lost in the dark. Why are the the Pharisees so blinded? 
Well, they're blinded by their desire to be right. Blinded by their desire to, you know, be in the know. Blinded by their lust for power. Um, boy, that, that, uh, that sounds a lot like politics now, doesn't it? It, says a whole lot, it sounds like a lot of things. And I think this passage serves as a cautionary warning that if we claim to see, we must be very careful that we actually truly see. Like, and be very careful that you're keeping your attention on the main thing, the most important things, on Christ and his church and his gospel and other people. And, and don't get distracted by all the other, no, uh, other noise and all the other footballs. Because there really is only one. I once was blind and now I see. If that is what you say, then please make sure that you are seeing Jesus. Amen.